This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 192 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Owen from washedupemo.com. Let's face it, you know I love the early 90s. Reason being, I wasn't as aware of things, and when I get to speak to people from this era, it opens up my eyes and ears to things that I missed while still listening to Earth Crisis and Snapcase. To that, today we welcome Brian Sokol from Franklin and AMFM. Franklin were banned from Philly around the years from 1992 to 2000 that had releases that you probably are aware of and played with many of your favorite bands during that time. Brian was a guitarist and put out a bunch of great music that runs the gamut from post to dub to lo-fi indie. With releases on Tree, Workshop, File 13, and others, and then with Polyvinyl for his days with the project AMFM, Brian has spent time putting together photos and audio online, so for whoever may stumble upon this, they can hear it. And that's how we met today. We also get to uh, spend time talking about his neighbor, Adam, from Adam and his package. Let's hear it for E is for Enya. Now here's how to learn more. Check out the website, gokidgo.org and gokidgo.bandcamp.com. That's the way to check out all the music, find out more stories from this era and scene. Dive in, hear Brian's words, and always keep digging and learning. Thank you all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this podcast happen and keep the lights on. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washed up emo. This is episode 192 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Brian Sokol from Franklin and AMFM. up the AMFM song, I just started looking around being like, oh, I just wonder, you know, who's doing what these days in this sort of, like, universe that, that might at least be, like, willing to listen to it. You know what I mean? Like, pretty much that's it. And when I came across your, your, your site, specifically, I was like, wow, like, he's really kind of, you know, doing some cool stuff. You know, like, you're co- talking to a lot of interesting people, and, and, and it seemed like a logical place sort of to reach out after I sort of looked at it and saw there was actually somebody who was, you know, genuinely interested in the music and and sort of the, the the history part of it and things like that so i just reached out from there oh that's awesome great i'm so glad you found yeah it. um yeah no totally 100 percent. and you know congratulations it's really cool and it's really neat what you're doing thank you yeah when i heard that you were around and willing to talk because a lot of people aren't this is a time period that isn't talked about enough 
and is lost. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of places like the Loud, uh, what is it, Loud Fast Philly. Um, they've sure. got a lot of great stuff for Philly, but it's few and far between. Um, and so it seems like... Do you genuinely find... Do you genuinely find people like not interested in talking about it? Oh man, dude, it is everybody hates the word. Everybody avoid if I named this website, you know, um yeah. banana shoes, like I think I sure. would have already had Jeremy Enig. I would have already had sure. a lot of people right, right, that right. don't want to talk. It's just the word sure. was bastardized for so long that they just ran away. Sure, of they, course. They still talk to me. I'll email them or, you know, we'll converse, but they will not the show that's hilarious that's so weird yeah it's uh, again i mean it's just one of those things it's like you know it seems like if you have that kind of a response to it that it actually does something to you like i mean I, you know you can get into whether it's a positive or a negative i have no i have no opinion whatsoever it does no it, 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 it's forever whoever wants to say it or use it like i'm just happy to talk about the experiences I had within punk rock, you know what I mean? Like whether it was, whether it was an emo time period or an emo genre, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm happy to just chat about it, you know? Cause I think it's, like you said, it's, it's very interesting for me to see people like yourself or, or, you know, that life does continue. And it's not a situation where, um, this time period lives in a bubble. I think it's fascinating. Like, that's why I think it's so cool what you're doing. And, and other people, it's, I think it's neat to kind of go back and revisit people that were, doing stuff in that time period because you know you forget how young everybody really was doing it. And then to sort of see that like, you know, they're still real people. They exist. You know what I mean? The history doesn't just stop. Right. And now they're doing these other things. And I think it's really cool to just sort of like discuss and be like, what was it like? And what are you doing now? And things like that. You know, I think it's cool. Yeah. And for, for you, the, I think in, in Philly being such a, you know, a, a hotbed, um, and being in, being in Pennsylvania, like getting into punk and hardcore, how did you find DIY? How did you find past the radio as I like to call it? Well, you, well, you know, it's so, it's so funny to me that you say things like that because to me growing up, I always thought Philadelphia and Pennsylvania was a complete no man's land of this stuff. Like when, when I was growing up and we got in, became interested in music, uh, I really, the, I think the reason we started doing anything was because we didn't think that there was anything out there for us to connect to. You know, I grew up, I was born in 74. So I graduated high school in 92. Um, and you know, I started getting into music. I was always into music. Like the first band I was into was like the police. You know I mean? I remember like being really into the police and then being like, man, I love music. It's really cool. But I got into, into punk music in like middle school, maybe like eighth grade or something like that with the sex pistols. And, shortly thereafter, you know, you kind of go through the path of the different kind of music. And I discovered somebody played like minor threat for me. And that immediately became of, of interest to me as I got into high school and became aware of like the DIY universe through discord and things like that. And so, and I started reading Mo maximum rock and roll and you start seeing things like, wow, there are really people doing these things. But to me and my friends, you know, we live just outside of Philadelphia and we would go to South street, take the train down and go around. But, we didn't know anybody in Philadelphia that was doing shows at the time. And I think at that time there really, there was like this weird dead zone of music happening. I'm sure there were bands happening that I wasn't aware of because I was too young and, mm -hmm. and naive or ignorant of, but there was no big overarching scene. Like there wasn't like the club that you went to. And if there was one, it might've been like a bar. You'd hear about a bar show or something. Um, and so 
we got really dedicated, me and my, my six friends, to this concept is like trying to, you know, trying to create our own scene. You know, like we're going to create a punk scene in Philadelphia. We're going to make it happen. Um, and so, I mean, really, that's kind of how it happened was through Maxim Rock and Roll and Discord Records and, and, and saying like, hey, we're going to start our own stuff like this. So, you know, and we all started our own bands and our own little high school bands and played and. I guess being somewhat industrious, my friend Greg and I, we decided that like Discord, we just start our own record label. So we started this record label called Elbowhead, and uh, you know figured out figured out you know we talked to Jenny and Kristen at Simple Machines and figured out how to put out a record and a seven inch and things like that, and just really sort of took it under our wings and assumed that that's just how you did it. So it was almost like a at that time, you know, I don't know what but people of that age nowadays are like, but for us, it was certainly a common sense of like, there, there's no way that this is actually going to be successful. You're just doing it because there's no other way to do it. You know, you got to do it yourself, you know? Right. I feel, um, I feel like there's, there was, there was no YouTube to go to. No. There was no wiki. And I remember, you know, a, a, a kid in my high school handing me like a, 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 a record that they'd made the sleeve. You know, they staple, or oh, not stapled, awesome. they uh, sure. they use the clothespin to put a patch, you know, on the paper, mm-hmm, cardboard, mm-hmm. and and <laughs> I, I was like, that was fascinating to me. I was like, how That's did you so do great. that? Because, well, yeah, I mean, that, ahead, that, you know, I'm just saying that blew, that blew kids' minds and and asking someone or, or reaching out by email, and that happens today. It does. You and I yep. met over email. We, but, but I think there, it, it's, it's, uh, there wasn't there. There, yes, you had maximum rock and roll, but it still took a lot. It wasn't. Let me just upload this on DistroKid, and it's everywhere in the world tomorrow. Totally, totally, and yeah, and, and you're and you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the things like I, I remember. You know, obviously, st- still very vividly for my life because it's been such an important part of my life. I mean, I remember being in like ninth grade art class. And my friends and I in our very first band called the Tasmanians, you know, we, we fed a friend of a friend of ours, his father did music therapy and in his house, he had all this old, I mean, just, I just remember dusty old recording equipment, reel to reel machines and all this shit in one side of his house. And for whatever reason, this kid's parents would go, go out every like Friday and Saturday night, they go out. So his son would invite us over to play in his bedroom and he'd run all the wires up the steps and all these old fucking microphones, like I said, and onto like, you know, crappy four track reel to reel and record us. And we'd spend all night on our weekends, just there playing cup, you know, sex pistols covers and then writing our own songs. And we recorded them. And of course it's all recorded live. It's not like it's like dubbed in the studio or anything like that, but we were recording all those songs. We, we made this demo of like 10 songs. I remember being in art class and just hand drawing the tape cassette cover because I literally at that point had no idea how you could actually go and get a cover to a cassette mass produced. You know right. what I mean? I figured I was just going to have to, I was going to have to sit in my bedroom and dub this thing one at a time and copy it on the printer in the library. And that's pretty much it. Um, but you did it right. You, you spent all day doing that because you were so passionate about it and you, and you believed in it. And that sort of was the, it was the impetus for like the next thing, like the next thing after that was when we decided that we would start a record label and my, my band and this other, we had changed a singer and we became this band called the random children in Philadelphia. And we started playing some shows uh, here and there when we met a couple people and we decided we we're going to make a seven inch. It's going to be a split seven inch, the first release, you know, kind of going back to the same sort of discord ethos mm-hmm. of like, 
you know, it's going to be a split label and it's going to be this thing and, you know, multiple bands are going to share our attention with each other. And I remember at the very top of my street, uh, where I grew up, there was this tiny little offset printing shack, you know, probably had been there since the 1950s, you know? And I remember just doing the same thing. I just, I just walked my ass up there one day and knocked on the door and said, Hey, you know, I, I was, a, I was a ninth grader and this old dude was running the place, running the print. And I said, I you know, want to make a seven inch cover. I have no idea what to do. And of course he's like, what the hell is a seven inch? You know, and yeah, you didn't say forty-five. <laughs> no, yeah, but I mean, but he'd never printed anything Correct. like that. Yeah. So you know, you know, we did it black and white. We took a photograph and we did it. And I remember bringing those, you know, five hundred copies home, and I had all my friends come over and we folded them up and stuffed and stuffed them in, in you know, little plastic sleeves because it was way too much to have them hand glued. You know, we'd have to do that ourselves. Um, you know, and you just go from there, like you said, exactly. It's like it's just a, a, a premise of like you know, you just getting up and going and doing it. It seems so obvious now, but I guess then it didn't, it just seemed completely like alien. You know, I mean, my parents were just like shocked by the whole thing. or just being like, you're, you're printing what, you know? And it's like, yeah. And then when they did it, they were always amazed. They're like, well, you did it. And great. What are you going to do with these seven inches now? And then you, you know, go to maximum rock and roll and try and sell them. And you know, play shows. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Then you go and play shows and, and it kind of followed that same thing. I mean, I remember, you know, we had our band and when we got a little bit older in high school, we met a couple people who were older than us. And this one kid came transferred into our school. He grew up actually in the city and he had introduced us to a lot more music because he listened to all types of punk music that, you know, we knew like the basic mall cassettes that you could buy, mm-hmm. but he started introducing it to us to a lot more things. And he played in like a mod band and he used to play in a ska band. And there's this guy, Ralph, that sang with him in the ska band who grew up near us. And he said, you should get him for your singer. So we got him and he knew lots of people in the city. <clears throat> and so we found out about this place in downtown in a really crappy area. And we, we played a show with, you know, our little bar. We borrowed our parents' car and drove down the night at the, in the middle of the night to play at this little arcade in the middle of nowhere in Old City, Philadelphia. And, and from there on, you just started playing shows at different places, houses and basements. And then, you know, we started doing... I sort of going through like the whole do it yourself thing. We contacted a club on South street called JC Dobbs, which had been there fucking since like the thirties or some crazy thing. It's like one of the oldest like music establishment places. And, you know, we did the same thing. We knocked on the door and talked to a lady named Kathy James, and they were looking to make some money on their bar when the bar was closed. And they let us start booking specifically, let me start booking uh, shows there on Sunday afternoons as, as uh, matinees. And so we started putting on shows and you'd have 20 people down there and you'd be like, this is the greatest scene we've ever seen. It's incredible. You know, it's like, it's like 20 kids, you know? Yeah. But we started booking, we started calling discord up and we would call discord and and have all their bands come up and play with us. So we would, you know, Jawbox and Ulysses and Circus Lupus and everybody came through and played with us and had our shows there. And it's like I said, it's just, it's just one thing after another. It's just, I guess I've always just been sort of like a logical, logically based person. You say, well, if we need to accomplish this, then I guess this needs to happen. So how do we do that? And so you just make the phone call, you know, and start going. It's interesting you say that. I got an email from a student. I, I, I mentor at the college that I graduated from and they emailed me and said, um, Hey, I really love music. I met you last year. I'm working at the radio station. I really want to get in music, but we don't have a music business program. And this was this morning. I'm not even bullshitting this morning. I just emailed them and they wanted to call. I was like, let me just email them. And I just wrote out everything I did at the school. And I go, there was no class that I took 
that yep. told me what to do. Yep. I hung out at the radio station. I wrote for the newspaper. I went to three to uh-huh. four shows a week. I was in a band. I, you yep. know, all I listed off 10 things. And I go, that's why I have a job in the music industry. That's how totally. I met. And I think all of, and the reason I bring that up is you putting on the shows, you're meeting those other bands, or now there's yeah. another venue where that kid shows up and buys that seven inch from you. And I, I know that that happens now and it's faster, but I loved the organic feeling of you booking that show. You have never met those people before and they showed up and you didn't have any, um, you didn't have any preconceived, like, I'm going to, I'm going to kill it tonight. We're going to meet these many people. Like you just let it happen. And that feeling I want to have again, I want to feel that unknown. And I, think that you doing those things it was all unknown you didn't know how to do the paper or that you didn't you know how to make the seven inch booking the show learning and i think making you probably made mistakes along the way super long question but that feeling of you didn't know but you had to yeah i mean exactly and and i think that's and you know I guess that's the thing that lots of times I feel like when I, when I read interviews with people or they do sort of like these, these sort of retrospective of like, what did punk do for you? You know, I'm 46 now. Right. And you see a lot of people talking about things like what did punk, it's like what it does. I mean, what anything has ever been, it just seems like it was like this conduit for all the stuff that you just logically said, I need to do that. Or I, I simply just want to do that. And so you just, you and your friends for whatever reason were motivated by that want to just make it happen. You know, you just figure out how to do it. You know, um, you know, I remember, I remember when we started booking shows at Dobbs and like I said, this woman, Kathy James, who was a, who was a Philadelphia sort of legend in her own right, because she booked so many bands at, at JC Dobbs and, you know, did so many things for so many different bands that came through here, which I didn't know at all. She was just some, to me, she was just some old lady. Right. You know what I mean? Like that, like hung out at the bar, and I was like, I don't know why she's letting us do it, but who cares? And I was so young and ignorant, I didn't try to find out that much. I was just very appreciative of her and said thank, you know, said my pleases and thank yous. But only years later did I find like, you know, how much she had done and how great she was. But she was so kind to pass that information along, be like, this is what you got to do. Here's what a quote unquote a guarantee is, blah blah. But I remember we booked shows and, you know, we got paid 20 bucks and it was great. Who cares? You know, like 20 people showed up and we thought it was a home run. It was like the greatest thing we've ever done. We just wanted to get up on stage and play our music. And I remember we booked Jawbox and Jawbox had just started. Like they actually sent us their seven inch, you know, sent, mailed me their seven inch. And I was like, who's this band Jawbox? How crazy is this? And I, and I remember talking to my friend, being like this band from, from DC literally mailed us their seven inch. It's so crazy. Like, what should we do? And so we said, let's book them. And I, you know, I remember calling and talking to Kim and Kim Coletta and all this stuff. And she said, yeah, we, you know, we'd love to come up and play. Um, but, you know, we're going to need a guarantee of like $150. And of course, at that time, my mind was like, how the fuck am I going to pay someone $150 to play a show? <laughs> it literally blew my mind. And I, but of course, we booked it. We were like, well, we're just going to do it. Let's figure this out. And if, and if it comes to it, then you know, I'll just, I guess I'll just use my money for my job and I'll pay them or something, you know? Um, but that's just what you did. You know, you did it, they showed up and, you know, they never had talked to me or had any experience with me, but they're like, yeah, fuck you, we'll play. And like you just said, that's the thing that then makes you feel inspired that I can do that too, right? You all share in this universe and if they do it, then we can certainly do it. Right. And that was the great thing about, you know, the great thing about for labels is like Discord and Lookout and when you start realizing who they were and what they were doing, it takes all the mystery out of it. 
all it, it takes the mystery out of it, and all it replaces it with is just the guts and the willingness to do it. And all of a sudden, you realize that like if you just have the guts and the willingness to do it, you can do it. Whereas before you thought, I don't have the know-how to do this. I can't do that, you know? Or like the student you were talking about, it's like, you know, yeah, you don't need to take a course to do it. You need to have the desire to do it, and you will make it happen. You need to get out there and, you know, just really investigate it and explore how to do it. Like, you know, take the seven-inch apart. How is it glued together? You know, go to a studio and record and make it sound horrible because you have no idea what you're doing. I mean, I'm 46. I'm recording music with my next door neighbor, and I just now feel like I have any idea how to make something sound decent when I'm recording it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love that. It's just, a, it's just a yeah. I mean, it's just a never-ending thing. You know? Right. From in the 90s, and I am four years younger than you, almost four years younger than you, and the same kind of time period, 90s. The shows were kind of, again, um, all different sounds, and that's you know how a scene sort of forms and morphs. Do you remember hearing the word emo, and did you have any thoughts on it And when you first heard it? Well, yeah, I had first heard, I had heard, first heard the term emo uh, when, I had heard, when I had heard from D.C. bands like Embrace and Rites of Spring. So, I mean, I had heard about it prior to it sort of being like, a, for me, it, it prior to it being like a genre that was like actually existing. Um, I don't know whether it was because it was a pre a precursor or something. Like I remember being in punk and hardcore and stuff like that. And then the people who were like my, you know, what, what I like to call like your grandfather or grandmother in punk who teaches you about bands and guides you along and gives you things to listen mm-hmm. to. Um, mine was this kid named Hyam and, and he would just every day bring me a new cassette mix that he made when we were in high school. He'd say, listen to this, listen to this. And it'd be like three songs from different bands. And then I would tell him which bands I really liked. And he'd then record the whole album for me and bring it back. And, you know, we go to the library during lunch break to, I would, he would let me copy his LP insert. So I knew all the lyrics and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And and he had told me about these bands, you know, Embrace and Right to Spring. And he said, yeah, they play, they play emo core. And I was like, oh, what's that? He's like, it's just really, you know, really emotional music. And at the time, there was, you know, when I heard, heard about it, when it came across to me, it was just a logical statement. Like, it didn't, for me, it didn't have a benefit of a positive or negative experience to it. It was no different than if you had said it was, you know, we always called it crust punk or, or you know, or anarchy, you know what I mean? Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was just another sort of qualifier of kind of what to expect. And so when we started playing like in Franklin and stuff like that, we had no, again, no genre in mind what we were doing. But then I felt like sort of towards the mid to late nineties is when I felt like it really started to become like a defining term and maybe a negative term, you know, to some people. Um, and then it just takes off from there. And then it became like, you know, hot topic essentially. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. We're not going to go there yet. Uh, I would. I think Franklin is um, a band I first heard on a compilation. You know, the Tree Southern yeah. Polyvinyl Comp, second track, Major Taylor. Um, yep. And the, I think those things. Uh, you know how you find things. You know, compilations are are the playlists. You know of today and 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 finding that. Um, th- I, obviously, that was the first time I heard you, but you were back, obviously, before that, meeting everybody and connecting. Um, I mean, I've heard so many different ways to describe your music, which I think is fucking great. It's not just like, oh, straight edge hardcore. You know, <laughs> like you don't need to. Right, right, there's right, no right, more sure, words. Sure. There's, 
you know, what did you, when you guys all got in that room, what was, what did it, because there's, I want to get into a bunch of different songs, but what was some of those first, you know, when the, when the hairs go up on the back of your neck or when you first heard Ralph sing, or like, what were some of those things that you guys just were like, oh shit, this is going to work? Well, for us, for us, it was never anything as, as grand as that. I mean, I think, you know, anything, anybody who likes us now, you know, there weren't, it didn't feel like there was anybody that really liked us then. Maybe some people in Philadelphia, but it, we'd always felt like we were just doing it for ourselves, really. Right. Um, when we first started, you know, we had like these delusions of like, when we first started, we, we started in the, in the spring of 92, just as we were about to graduate high school. And we had played in like a punk band and the, and we had the big, the, the epitome of what we had accomplished with this band called the random children was that we had put out a couple seven inches. We got to be relatively known around Philadelphia and some people liked us. And, um, we played with Fugazi at Drexel, um, in 91. And it was, you know, biggest thing I've ever, biggest show I'd ever seen. I was like, this is insane. And, you know, I was a massive Fugazi fan. And from that point on, when we played that show, we sort of, Ralph, who was singing for Random Children at that time, and, and Greg, a close friend of mine growing up who played drums, I played bass in Random Children. We sort of j- all sort of sat down. We're like, that's kind of what we want to do. Is it something like what Fugazi is doing? The music that we've been playing prior to that was more kind of like Sex Pistols, Johnny Thunders type of punk music, which, mm-hmm. again, I love. Um, I have a better appreciation for it now, but at that time, when music was really starting to happen for me in the early nineties, when I was really getting into like that kind of genre of music, it felt very dated to me. And I was like, I don't want to play music like this. I want to play music that's sort of like trending somewhere different. And we are also like, had just gotten into, just started listening a lot and became aware of Ulysses from DC, who we had booked a show for. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, wow, like this explosive nature is something that we want to kind of get into. So, Ralph and Ralph, our singer, had wanted to start playing guitar. So we were like, you know, let's. And we all had, and we had tons of different. You know, also the other thing is like, we were not just punk kids. Like Greg was like a massive like U two fan, and and really loved all types of different kinds of music. Ralph had a very diverse music background as well, and you know, I was probably of the three of us the least diverse. You know, I liked the Police, I liked Fugazi, <laughs> and things like that. You know what I mean? You were boring, um, Brian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it was so cool because those guys knew so much more, f- from my perspective, seemed to know so much more different kinds of music. And when we started playing, we really kind of looked at it sort of like open-ended. So it sounds stupid to admit it, and they'll probably, they would probably kill me. But when we first started the band, we were like, let's be a completely free-form band. When we play live, we're going to just improvise every set based on some loose groundwork of songs but it could be spastic calm noisy whatever um and then when we record songs we'll actually have songs but when we play live why do we want to just play those songs so we had this like concept for what we wanted to do and of course i'm sure then it was terrible but at the time it felt very expressive and i think that's kind of as young people that's what we were looking to do we wanted something that felt very like uh feral and like like i said explosive um, but then I feel like we started playing more and more and writing songs and, um, we just started putting together a couple of songs that I, we just sort of felt like, huh, that's that kind of sounds like competent. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it sounds like something like we're doing something relatively decent. 
um, you know, one of the first songs that we, that, that might've been is a song that people still joke to me about now, because whenever we would play live, they'd always call it this song called sliding, which is like on one of our early seven inches. And then we re-recorded it for our first LP, but it just had, it had like this ending where it was a big guitar end with like Ralph and I would sing in harmony, which is kind of blue arm, even though it was like a very simple, like two part harmony. We just felt like, whoa, look what we can do. Like, I had no idea we could do that, you know? And started to feel like something we could be, you know, I don't know, maybe proud of. Maybe that's not the right word, but something that we would be like, this seems to be expressing something that feels right when we do it. And, um, and you make a good point. Like, you know, I think as playing in a band sometimes, yeah, you really do kind of come across some songs where you, when you play them and you record them, you're like, wow, how do we write that? Like, that's pretty awesome, you know? And it takes those four um, people. It takes those, It the, there's a connection or something. I just, I love those moments. And I know you said it's not as grandiose, but I still think there's moments where you're, like you say, like, you know, Ralph has an idea or you're listening to, you know, Greg do this beat and you're like, wait a minute, totally. what if it's this? And and again, I hear Fugazi. I hear those influences. Um, and I think what's what's different about you guys in that era is, um, you know, it's like post, but indie rock and chaotic, but also like dub. Yeah, and 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 that I think you know that's you know and that, and that just is kind of like I was going to say. Like I, I mean, I think we also benefited from the ability, for whatever reason, good or bad, is that we stayed together for as long at that time. You know, for what seemed like a, a lifetime. Right. We were together from from ninety two until ninety nine. A lifetime. Um, which which is a lifetime. You know I mean? It's just, you know, just insane. So it, we actually had the opportunity to play together and I think get better playing with each other, even though we probably never got as good as we wanted to be. Um, but then could also experience different kinds of music as our own education happened with music to bring it into the band, right? Like right. instead of like the band being, being a one note wonder, and then you go into some other band and you play just on that focus, like the band could grow. So, you know, we, you know, we did our first LP and it's, you know, like, and I agree with you. Like, I think we each have certain characteristics about us. Like I always like a good melody. Um, and, you know, and, and so we'd always have like some pop elements and then some like punk elements and, and things like that. And, and what happened for us significantly was that Greg and Ralph in particular, the two of them started getting very, very into reggae and dub music. Um, and they started bringing these type of ideas into the band and sort of educating me and our, our, our other bass player at the time. And then we all started, started getting very into the dub aspect of things. But I think it's also because we were huge Bad Brains fans. We were huge Police fans. And those types of, that style of music was always sort of like lived in that universe. So we're like, wait, yeah, like these are things we can, we can, there's examples of how this music can live together. Um, and so that's kind of where we started experiencing it. And so, you know, I remember we wrote this one song. We did a seven inch for a label called Great American Stake Religion from Canada. And um, we wrote this song called, you know, we, we called it the Nuda. And it has a very kind of heavy lumbering beat. But in the in the you know the middle of it, there's a you know like a middle eight break where there's just a, an upstroke. Ralph decided to play this part. You know, in this break, it's it's of an on an upstroke, which we had never really done before. Um, and it all of a sudden felt like, hmm, that's interesting. 
And then I feel like we kind of went deep into that universe of exploring much more of how do we turn the guitars down a little bit and have the bass and the drums be more the anchor to what we're doing. Um, I love that. And, you know, like I said, yeah, and I think, you know, for a while it really sucked. I mean, we did this album... We did this album called um, Building an A&E. We ended up finding out somehow, I don't even remember this. This is a weird, dark spot for me, but we ended up finding out. We had recorded our earliest seven inches down in Baltimore at the studio called Hound Sound, which was an amazing studio. And then um, we had found out when we were about to record this album that this guy named The Scientist, who was a legendary dub producer from Jamaica, he worked with King Tubby and, and everything, turned out that he was living in Baltimore and recording at Hound Sound. And so, you know, we're deeply into, into dub music and reggae music, and he's recording. And so we're like, well, why would we not take this opportunity to go record with like this legendary dub right. producer? You know, because we're thinking the Clash and Lee Perry. You know, the, look, the Clash did fucking remote control and complete control. They did it with with Lee Perry. It was incredible. It's going to be an awesome experience. <laughs> well, you know, we go down, and you know, we're 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 not clearly not as talented as the Clash, and uh, are still just sort of experiencing how we can sort of bring our music style into like a dub and reggae sort of universe. And uh, this producer is here, who's been recording for years and years and years, sees these dipshits walk in there and he's just like i don't know what the fuck you're doing here but just pay me because i gotta buy weed um and so we have this crazy experience with him and you record his album and, and it was a great a great experience because you learned you learned so much from him but the record sounds horrible it was a disaster you know and it was just like oh it was just terrible but it, but we learned a lot and so you know i think when we finished that is when we kind of really came out of it I guess stronger because then we really went into like where you were mentioning major Taylor, um, which I think was one of our first songs we wrote in what I like, what I consider like our third stage of the band Mm -hmm. where we kind of put all the pieces together. And Greg had had that sort of dance hall beat from that song, which is like the, you know, and we were just like, that is an amazing beat. We have to do something with that. And I still remember we wrote, you know, like you were saying earlier, like when we wrote that song, like I think that was definitely like a hairs on the back of my neck thing. We wrote something that's like pretty spectacular, like, you know, not spectacular in the genre in the, in the universe of like people are going to give a shit spectacular. What I found is there's a spectacular nature of when you write something that you really are passionate about that speaks to you right. internally. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there are songs that I, that I've worked on or been a part of that I can say like, that is a, almost a perfect example of what music sounds like right in my head. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, that's interesting that's that when I that. heard it. That's funny because I you went through Go Kid Go. You went till Building yeah. Any and I hadn't heard it yet. You know, I was right. I was somewhere else. I was listening to Promise Ring or wasn't paying attention. Sure, and then sure, sure. hearing but I almost like it's like uh putting out that on that comp which was almost getting on a big Spotify playlist. You Right, right. Not, uh, it's almost like that was the time needed to get to that point when you were ready to be shouted from the rooftops. Hundred percent, and 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 that's and that's truly, and I and I agree with that statement a lot because I think, like I said, I mean, we never had delusions of grandeur. We were always struggling. We were always trying to do something that never really felt that it lifted off during the time that we were in the band, but we were always very satisfied musically. And I think that's also the thing that really kind of led to the band lasting as long as it did is that, you know, it really, 
yeah, would we love to have gone on a tour, a better, you know, a tour, you know, when we go and play, you know, drive eight hours and play for 20 people and you'd be a little bit bummed out. Sure. But you were still so proud of what you were accomplishing creatively that it kind of like was okay. It was a, it was a fair trade-off, you know? Right. Um, and I, and yeah, so I think when we get to that, to major Taylor and then for me, personal emergencies, that seven inch, I just love forwards and backwards. I love the whole seven inch. And then we went in and did the, you know, the tree LP, which is the self-titled double album. It just felt like this is a pretty good statement. I think of what we were trying to get to, um, as a band musically. And I think maybe that's why, you know, I think it was why we kind of broke up at that point too, is that it had been eight years and, and it just sort of felt like making that album took a lot of time and a lot of hard work. And I think it kind of felt like there's no way we're going to be able to go back and put the effort into it to make an album better than this. Wow. We should probably just call it a day. You know what I mean? Like this, this is, this is the best that we can do, you know? Did everybody feel that way? I think so. I think at the time though, like with anything, I think, you know, the band probably could have done a lot more, but I think at that time there's a lot of personalities in the band that you play with for so long. You get sick of everybody's personalities and life. how things work. You know, this, yeah, life, this person's always late to practice. That drives <laughs> you crazy. This person, you know, uh, it just, you know, it just becomes difficult. And I also think, which is what, what ended up happening honestly with AMFM too. Um, if I'm to look at it from, my, you know, obviously I can only look at it specifically from my side, but what I found was the interesting thing about for me, the nineties of music and what I was doing was that it was so focused on not worrying about the outside world, but working more internally. Like there was the true DIY aspect of it. You were, you knew that you weren't going to be on a major label. You knew you weren't going to play some crazy huge club. You Mm -hmm. knew you weren't going to make a living at it. You did it purely because it was something that was like a true, it was a true hobby in the best sense of the word. It was something that you just passionately loved to do and loved to like experience. It was great. You know, like going to play John Hilt's basement, great experience. Just some dude's basement in Jersey, you know, you know, it was just, and it was just everything about it was awesome. And when I, and when I sort of, what I found, and this may be, I mean, someone could probably sit there and be like, oh, you were just, you know, being a little baby about it. But what I ended up finding is that at the turn of the, of the century, when we went into 2000, it just sort of became much more exposed in the way that like, well, maybe you could make a living of this. Maybe you could have a song on MTV or a song on, you know, some big, huge thing that could make you be quote unquote successful. And what I found for myself, for whatever reason, in that time period, I felt that I was being drawn to compete in some way like that. Like, I guess it became a situation where, like, if it was possible, somewhere in my brain, I started to wonder if I should be trying to do that. And it started to feel like you all of a sudden, around that time, needed a booking agent. You, around that time, all of a sudden, needed a publicist. And all these different things. Labels were getting publicists and booking agents and, and certain things were happening and the promising we're doing a video. And, and, and it started, honestly, I think in a, in a strange way, it started to become like overwhelming to me because it started to feel like competitive almost. And that was a characteristic that I didn't like to see in myself of like being like, I want to do that. I want to try this. And I felt like it was pushing me on to a, a, a bad path. And so... I kind of got out of it. I kind of just was like, eh, I'm just going to stop and not focus on that kind of stuff for right now and just, you know, do other things. 
I, it's very funny you say that because the that is what what it felt like. It's it's like those early two thousands. I started working at yeah. labels in two thousand, and I remember when the A and R guys started bugging me, and they were like, "Hey, what are you listening yeah. to?" And I'm like, "What do you? What the fuck do you hear? What I listen to? Like, I I, right. I I'm going to you know I'm going down to you know ABC No Rio later. Like, you don't care about that area, oh. and." when I lived in New York and they, they were, you know, th- th- because punk was starting to, you know, and those words were starting to get into this lexicon. And yeah, I was like, what do you mean? Why do you need a publicist? Why do you need a booking agent? What are those? Like, don't you just right. call the venue? Right. And I was in bands then and I stopped the same thing. That's so funny to say. I was like, I, I, I don't want, I, I want to be on the other side. <laughs> I want to be in the label side. Yeah. I don't want to be a band and have to do this. <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah, no, I, 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 a hundred percent. I mean, I remember, you know, when we were doing AMFM, my friend Mike and I, and we would be on tour, and AMFM because we, you know, obviously working with Polyvinyl was a bigger experience, and and it was great. I mean, Matt never made us do anything. Matt was just always a sweetheart. It was, right. It was more of just the perception of like, well, if we're going to be serious about this, all of a sudden serious meant something totally different than what I had been used to. Like when I was serious about it, it meant like, you know, like, like, like we had talked about earlier, it's like you're playing at a firehouse somewhere or in someone's basement or, you know, you're figuring out how to do X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden it just started to, to feel like more business oriented. Like all of a sudden I had to worry about all these things. And as opposed to like, writing a song and being happy with the song, all of a sudden I had to start worrying about like, well, is, is this publicist any good for you know what I want to accomplish? Which yeah, it is started weird. to feel very gross. You yeah. know, like I was like, I don't, this, I don't. and then I think I'd be, like I said, I mean, I, I don't think it was, um, and I want to be clear, but I don't think it was because I thought I was too good for it. It was that it became overwhelming to me. Like it became like too much. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Like I, I feel a little bit lost here. And so for me at that time, like around 2003, it was just easier to kind of like not do it. Right. That's really interesting. I mean, you the know? reason why the, I, the, I still do the podcast, I really think it's kept going for almost 10 years is that I don't rely on it for income. I don't rely. Totally. It's only fun. And if, totally. you, if you don't want to fucking do it and you want to get into podcasting and I would have then thought like, well, I can't have Brian on from Franklin. No one gives a shit about Franklin. You know, I'm kidding. But like, right. I have to get no, no, that no. giant band. No, 100%. And 100%. That's, and I think, you're right. And that's you're stressful. Saying exactly, you're saying exactly what cause I, I felt. That's what I started to feel like. I started to feel like, well, if we're not getting to play this show, it means something. Right. Or if we don't get if we don't get to play this specific club because it's the cool club, it means something. And and like I said, I, I it just started to feel wrong in some way. And I think at the time I didn't really know why, but I think now with a little bit of hindsight, I start to realize like, oh, it was probably like I said, it was like this overwhelming kind of creepy situation. And like you said, it was such a better experience at the time when you when it didn't nothing depended on it because you could just experience it. Right. And have another job. Like I had a job. That was my day. Yeah. And then I went home and did something that I wanted to do and, and, and push forth. And you can have that balance, but it's hard. And I think the you from the from that get go of like you wanted to make that, you know, seven inch wanting to make those things when other things come into play, I think it clouds it. And uh, uh, and those things happen. And I think it's a miracle that you guys were around that long and were able to have that happen. What if you guys started in 99? 
Like you would have been midway through the, I mean, the mid two thousands, you would have guys would have been, what the hell's going on? Or maybe, maybe you would have figured out my space before everybody, you know, who, what I love thinking about that. No, I, I don't know. That's the thing is like, that's all. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what the, what the you know, situation is. I mean, I feel, I mean, I still listen to tons of music. I still listen to new music and I still write music, you know, like, uh, you know, my friend Adam from, yeah, I don't know if you ever remember this thing called Adam and his package. Of course. But, um, I've seen Adam and his package yeah. many times. Uh, he's my, he's my best friend from, from first grade. We've been friends forever. Well, we now, we now live directly next door to each other. What? We're neighbors. <laughs> and, uh, so we're recording music together as a band, like just the two of us during, during quarantine. So like we've almost finished this like album of stuff. Um, and you know, it's the same thing. It's like, I don't really know how bands do things these days. Like you just, cause it's not, it's not integral to how my life works. Right. So like, so I wonder, it's like, well, and I also have wondered the same thing of like being like, you know, if Franklin had kept going or had started when we did, would we have a different response? Because, you know, some people have told us like, oh, you guys are way ahead of the curve on a lot of things. I think if people had heard, you know, had, had if you had been playing around 2010, you know, people would have been so into you, like around, you know, you know all these different bands that were right. doing kind of like revival stuff to that kind of content. And like, I don't know. I have no idea. But honestly, you know, I'm so happy that it happened when it happened, because for me, the 90s was just such an incredible window of time. And, and I think it's very interesting to me that, that, that I was, I was so lucky to have been able to grow up in music and in specifically in punk music from like 1990 until 2000 and have that sort of like learning process through that entire window. Cause there's so many great waves of music and bands and experience and the DIY you know concept was, was alive and present there. And there was no internet. There was no, you know, social media was such an incredible experience to have. But I think all the elements that, that grew out of that still inform me today. Whereas I'm not sure what it's like right now with social media and all these other things where, you know, you have to worry about getting a song on a Spotify playlist to, to do anything or, or all these other areas. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, right. I know there's still bands playing in basements and I love, I know bands are still putting out their own records. It's fucking great. But I think it would be completely ridiculous not to acknowledge the fact that the way that content is going to be consumed and thrown away so quickly now sort of cheapens that effort, you know, because it's like you do it one day, it's done, and another brand's being listened to, you know? Right, and I think it's just like Maximum Rock and Roll having 1,000 ads or 1,000 reviews. How do you get, how does it pop out? How does it do, those things happen. But the, the idea that, um, the, there, that's what I mean about the unknown. Like I now Wikipedia, every single, every single band I'm going to go see or listen to sure. them before. And, and I sometimes wish I, I didn't. And I, I, or, but of course I'm, but, uh, but and, you, and, and I want to know can. set times and, but I can, and I right. love it, but no, exactly. the, uh, your time period of putting out those records for you guys. And even definitely part of AMFM too. I mean, it was still pretty archaic, um, in totally. the two thousands. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, Adam and I, might, like I was saying, Adam and I were just talking the other day. We were having, you know, just sitting down chatting and, and we were saying, cause we both really loved, I don't know if you listened to them, but this band called the Beths from Australia, um, they put out this amazing album a couple of years ago. And it was like, we thought it was like this flawless, you know, pop record, super great pop punk record is awesome. And they just had a new record come out. And so we've been waiting for it to come out, but 
we've been remarking that over the last like two months, they've released one song from the album every week on streaming services. So essentially, by the time the album comes out, it's pointless because you've heard these little drips and drops of a record. And so there's no charm of getting an album anymore. It's just these singles coming out as blips, you know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah, like, so like the music world today is so totally different that like, you know, I wouldn't try to say that it's good or bad. It's just different from the way that I experience the way that I like to enjoy it. Um, and so, yeah, it's hard to know, but there's benefits because I can go and listen to the record that every record that I want to on streaming. And that's awesome too. You know, like, you know, bands that you've never would bands you couldn't find their seven inch to save their life. Now, you know, you can find easily hose cable, their entire discography. I could find in two seconds. Right. Whereas before it's like, I couldn't find any of their fucking seven inches. And they're like one of my favorite bands, you know? Right. Yeah. To know that it's so, out there and you can find, and there's probably a kid younger than us knows way more about the nineties than we do. Maybe because totally. they've been able to totally. access it. And that's what I get stoked on when I talk to someone and they're like schooling me. I'm like, dude, what yeah. did you figure out that I didn't realize? <laughs> totally. Well, it's also, it also blows my I tell you the thing that, that really blows my mind in a positive way. It's incredible. Is like, again, goes back to the fact of during quarantine, just been recording so much music is that the, the difficulty I mean, let alone for beat bands who are doing, operating in the 80s, but in the 90s, the difficulty of finding a decent studio to record at right. that was affordable and that you weren't blowing through time and you only had like a day to record because you couldn't afford anything else, and let alone hoping the producer had any idea what the fuck they were doing. Um, and now the fact that you can buy a Mac computer and have GarageBand on it and the sounds and, sim- and, and, and simulations in that thing, you can record a song on... 36 tracks in an afternoon and make it sound better than any fucking thing we put out in the nineties is incredible. I love that. Yeah. You know, like a kid figuring a, out garage a, band, you know, and it dude, that, that, yes, that, that a band could, can wreck can, can fully realize like that kind of quality of like, you know, it, what, I mean, it's amazing that, you know, cause I remember going to studios and you have to sit there and try and beg the producer, the engineer, of what you're trying to do. Like, please turn that guitar up. No, son, I can't turn it off. It's going to go into the red and I can't have it go in the red and blow one of my compressors. <laughs> well, fuck you. Now you can record it yourself in your room and make it sound exactly like you want it to sound, you know, and it's, in the and red it's, the entire is, time. <laughs> yeah. And that is, and that is truly like fucking incredible. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, that technology has gotten to where it is that you can do that. You know, like I said, I know there's plenty of people who come out there and say like, Oh, yeah, but unfortunately, also with technology, is every fucking Tom, Dick, and Harry making the worst band in the world available to be downloaded. But yeah, I but still you know, think fine. it's the effort. It's still the... Totally. It's, you might have made the record, but you still need to find whatever today's print shop down the street and making right. it. Or the bright connections. And I and uh, going back to that email... Um, you know, it's like networking. I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like nothing, nothing happened because I was just in my basement on a computer or maybe in my basement, just making music in the night. I had to go out and see people and connect. And it's interesting now with the, the quarantine of like, there's almost like a stunting of that at the moment. Yes, it's online and there's sure. zooms and we're talking over, but there's a, a stunting to that, that I think will have, I think ramifications for a long time. Uh, yeah, I, I I would have to agree with that too. I mean, I, I, I you know it's like you don't really you don't know what you don't know, and there's certainly going to be th- weird things that happen where it's not it's not 
happening. You know, it's, but I guess that's a weird thing too, is like, I feels like, you know, the music industry becomes, it goes, I guess I'm now, I'm old, you know, maybe we were old enough to see it go like that. Right. Like I was saying before, like when I was a kid and I came up, I didn't think there didn't seem to be a scene. Like there were like waves, like it seems like cities have scenes that go in waves. Right. There's a couple of years where a bunch of bands pop up, they explode and then things die out for a time. And then things, and the new crop of kids come and they do that again. And it's the same thing. It sort of felt like for me, for music, it was like big and industrial and corporate. And then it became really punk and, and went underground. It was in basements and in church basements and all these crazy places where you couldn't put on a show. And then in the 2000s, it became really, really corporate and big again. And now it's really, really big. And who knows? Maybe it's going to send people back into like a bunker stance because you can't do anything. So maybe there'll be this like online secret universe you right. know, of, of, of tape trading or something. I don't know. You I know? love that. It's, you know, it's a sea, it's a sea of mystery, you know, which is great. Yeah. Um, I did want to mention crazy. a few songs, um, from the catalog that I thought would make, make sense to mention on go kid go sure. for Franklin, uh, super Esperanto, Esperanto, right? Yes. Esperanto. Es- super Esperanto. Yeah. Esperanto. Thank you. Uh, super epic ending. Where did that come from? Yeah. Um, I think from that one, um, I'm trying to think there's a, it sounds complicated. I mean, it sounds corny, but like there's a, um, a guitar. Let me, I'm actually on my computer. Let me call it up real quick. Yeah, of course. I'm going to actually give you like a real, uh, the power of editing, a a real, yeah, a real response. Um, okay. So I'll tell you where that came from. Being a kid, when we recorded that, not really knowing how to play guitar, I'd never taken any lessons or anything. Um, at the end of that, uh, there's a there's the there's a break and there's a chord that that you play in that song, which I stole out of a quicksand song, and I had no idea how to play it. But when I figured out what the chord was, I thought it was the coolest sounding chord ever, um, and so we just sort of riffed on that basically, um, and that song sort of came from that sort of creative element. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? love that. that. You're always, you're always ripping things. Oh, off. of but course. Yeah, there's the, you know, and, and, and it was always interesting to me because we had like, I thought it was odd. And I guess I still do kind of think it was odd that on our, you know, we finally got a chance to record an album, um, that we had two instrumentals on it, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, you finally have the chance, and then you just... Yeah, yeah, it's like, let's just do instrumentals. What the hell? This will be fun, you know? <laughs> All right, so Walter's awaiting his check. Okay. Um, mm-hmm, exactly. Don't tell him. <laughs> I won't. And then um, I think one-off building in A&E, which I know you said it wasn't sonically, that, of course, band's going to say that. Uh, the song DJ Goes Dead. Can you talk about that one? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that I think, was one of our very first real successes in creating sort of what we sort of imagined as a hybrid of punk and dub. Um, you know, I think when we started writing music around this time and kind of in- incorporating like reggae and things like that into our songs, you know, it was, it was hit or miss. It was spotty. But I think with that song, I think we had finally hit a spot where there was kind of a, an element, like we always, I think I always love about dub stuff is that, you know, it, for me, if it's, done the stuff that i really really like is the stuff that kind of has a very creepy kind of um spooky kind of element that lies underneath it like you hear what's going on but it also has a very kind of like almost kind of dreading kind of weight to it Mm -hmm. um 
and so when we did DJ and we wrote that song, I felt like, you know, oh, okay, this seems to be like something that we can actually accomplish together that fills that kind of void. Like it has like a, it has like a, a prettiness to it of like pop. It has a pop melody to it, but it has sort of like that dub underweight and undertone that kind of feels kind of creepy and, and spooky. And I really think that that was one of our successful moments. But I think our recording of that song, our re-recording of that song on our, self-titled album the tree album is like way more successful mm-hmm. i think the tone of that recording is way cooler i think the extended play out back is way cooler and just works way better but yeah i think that was one of those sort of touchstone moments where i think we were like oh we kind of accomplished something here this is kind of cool you know i love that and then the the, the tree records we didn't talk about it or earlier i thought worse is is worth mentioning is you know tree records you know ken shipley uh, that was a, yep. I mean, that was an epic time for Tree in '99. Yeah, yeah. So that was a big deal. Signing to Tree stuff. was like, you know, signing to a pretty big label. <laughs> yeah, but we, but it, 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 I mean, yes, but we knew Ken forever from around Philly. He lived out sort of near Villanova. Right. Um, he, I don't. Have you ever met Ken? Or ever talked to Ken? I have not yet. Ken is a, is a super, super guy, but he's also, uh, he's kind of a little bit intense. Like he's very high strung, I would say. And I mean, in the best way, I've always loved Ken, but he's very like going a million miles an hour. He's always a dude who has a lot of ideas and a lot of goals to accomplish. So we just always knew Ken from doing stuff around Philly and he ran tree and was doing stuff. And we're like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, and for us to do a record with him just felt very natural. Like, we, I don't think he felt, part- I mean, maybe he did. I would, I would hope that he was like excited by it, but you know, I don't know whether he was like, yeah, these are my buddies. I'm going to help them out. And the same thing with us. Like we were just like, yeah, Ken's great. And he's doing a great job with his label. Let's work with him, you know? And, and it just felt very sort of natural. The best thing with Ken is that he, you know, he really just, um, let us do what we wanted to do, which is amazing. Like, you know, when we told him that we want to do a double LP because you wanted the LPs to be 45 RPM so that the bass was thicker, um, and he was like, sure. I mean, it was just amazing, you know, cause it's like, I mean, who the hell is going to do that? Right. You know, who's going to sit there and but yeah, let's, let's spend that money and let's do it. But he was like, yeah, man, let's do it. It's like, I love the songs and let's, let's work on it and make it happen. And you know, he was, he was great like that. And you know, it was a really, a, you know, that record, like I said, I'm after what happened with building an A and E, I was so, we were so proud that that record came out the way it did. Cause it really kind of felt like, all of our learning with the band from 1992 up to then had it had accumulated into being a finally a successful release mm-hmm. of like, you know, this is what we, this is what we, the packaging looks like. This is what we want it to sound like. And these are the songs and we went around 45 RPM and it just all came together. You know, that's great. The song off of that, that I really like is death by delay. And I think it kind of plays into some of the AMFM stuff. Cause it's just this epic song and it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. It's really nice. Um, that record took a long time to write. Uh, we worked on that record for a long time. But I, myself as a fan, because um, I think I can step back and say, because I don't think I had a whole lot to do with writing the, the meat of that song. I mean, I wrote my guitar part, mm-hmm. but I think it really sort of came from this like groove that Greg and Ralph and Josh really put together. And yeah, I just think, like I said, it, it kind of had this, it just sort of has this weight to it mm-hmm. um, and sort of this perpetual ocean that I think is really great. And I, and I love songs that are like that. Like, you know, the Beatles, she's so heavy. Like it just goes on for forever at the end there. 
And I love that kind of like repetitive recycling of sound that just sort of gets in your head and you can just, it's almost like driving music, right? You can yeah. just go and go and go on the highway at night and it's just perfect. We're, and still are, but we always at the time too, were massive lungfish fans. Yes. And so we were, we were always interested, I think. And again, because of from, from our dub interest, um, of finding, we're, we're always interested in at least trying to find you know, a groove or a riff that would just go, but you didn't have to change, you know, like you could, if you wanted to, but it wasn't required because it was just so good that it could just keep running for time and time and time, you know? Yes. Um, that's my favorite you know, part of the song. Great, yeah. I mean, like, you know, the best lungfish song sounds like a song you just happen to walk in on and it's the song that will never end. It's just going to play for the next 35 centuries. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And you're just hearing 10 minutes of it. And so, yeah, so Death by Delay for sure was like kind of that, that kind of like an element of, of finding something that was just sort of uh, something you could hang your hat on and I just sort that. of roll with. And again, I like it because I feel like, I feel like it does for my needs. It's a great last song because it kind of ends the band too. And it kind of always felt like, yeah, that's a good note to end on, you mm-hmm. know? Well, how has it been since... Um, the breakup and there was obviously you guys got together in 2003 to record that other song but since then have people brought up the band or have there been times where people have have you know um they've been like oh wow i had no idea because again we we talked about at the beginning some of these things get lost i mean workshop is not around or you know tree it's like these records sometimes records get lost and well actually there was a there was an article yes so it's it, you know it's not like a massive wave of things, but yeah, we all uh, you know uh, several years ago I put up a blog. Um, it's called GoKidGo.org, and it's just my like recollections from being in the band and and the time that I was doing, basically from the '90s. If you haven't seen it, you might want to take a look at it. You might I have. come across some things it's, of interest. It's fucking. Oh, okay. be- I I, so, I want to bring that up too that that site. So I'm glad you did because it's just like being oh. able to do that and write that down. The documentation part is important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. No, I agree. And I think that's kind of what, I mean, I was just, I think I was just bored when, like I said, there was no reason to do it other than just having a passion to do it. And I had all these photographs, so I started working through it. So, um, yeah, I think it was kind of like, um, wait, what was the question? No, meeting like, me you know, got, no, 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 totally. It was that, that was my fault. Oh, my, oh yeah, yeah. People coming back. Yeah. 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 So one time it happened was somebody in a, in a magazine, it was online. It was, you know, it was a print magazine that had gone online. I don't remember what it was, but they basically, it was basically an article that said bands that time forgot. It was Scott Heisel and in Alt first, Press. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and that came out of nowhere. I had no idea that was being written. I knew nothing about it. And someone just like sent it to me one day and was like, did you see this? And that, I think that might have been the first time that I had seen something after our breakup that was that felt like someone had sort of gotten it. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when we played our last shows, there was great turnout. People were, I mean, I knew that people from Philadelphia were like an appreciator of band and they made us feel really awesome. When we played our last shows, it was awesome. But when we were done, we were done, you know? Um, and that was the first time I had read something that I was like, wow, like that person really seemed to like understand what we were doing and, and seemed to really appreciate it. And so since then, yeah, like we we'll, we'll, we get hit up by lots of different people who discover us or had never heard of us or are fans of like 90s music. I said, I'd never heard of you and I didn't even know you guys existed. And I heard the song. And I love the song. And I want to buy an album. Do you have any? And I might have one sitting in our basement or something like that. Right. Um, 
so yeah, I mean that that stuff does happen, and and that's actually was was one of the reasons also why I, I've kind of become the the band caretaker of everybody that was that's ever that was in the band because I have all like the tapes and everything like that. So you know, I was the one who ended up putting everything up on Spotify and and the other streaming channels because they didn't exist up there. I mean, A and E sat up there because of File Thirteen, but the Tree Record wasn't right. there. Our Go Kid Go wasn't there. Nothing was there, and so that's when I was like, I have to get all these things up, and again. That's another example of the pros and cons of the technology, right? Because for the longest time, I couldn't get the music up there unless I was through some sort of large aggregator that was going to take a lot of money and do X, Y, and Z. Well, then you have all these sites to come up within the last couple of years, and in 10 minutes, I can put everything up online. And it was, and it was fucking great, you know? So now at least I can be confident and be like, look, if you want to find the music, if you're interested or you read something, it's there to be heard. You know, right. and I think that's like the best bet for any band is to just be able to sit there and say, and that's how I mean that's how I am as a music listener too. I just love fucking digging into things and and really researching. So, you know, if I was a kid and I for some reason came across a band and, for example, Franklin and read something and I wanted to hear it, and I couldn't. I'd be like, what the fuck? What am I supposed to do? You know? Or you have a crappy one on YouTube that's from a seven inch right. ripped directly that sounds like crap. Yeah, it's crazy how much stuff is is lost, and that kind of gets back to why I was really excited to kind of talk to you because the interest in documentation of this or having you having this tapes or you having these photos, um, most, most people don't, most people just kind of, you know, they might have the record or they're not doing it. And it's not like we can go back and everyone and the crowd had their phone out. Um, you know, there was one kid that on the side of the stage that had his camera that took 30 shots and, and, um, but the, that idea um, I think, you know, talk, film too. I mean, how many films were lost? Um, you know, uh, I think there's films, I forget, oh, I forget the stat. There's something about like just stuff being lost every single day um, because it's, it's uh, deteriorating and they can't, they totally. can't digitize the films fast enough. And just to know that you guys had it up there, you've got the band camp up, you have all these things there for someone to discover is, I mean, like you said, the caretaker, I just think like, did that, did that always, did you think about that at the time or was it when you were able to be done with it and be like, Oh wait, I have all this AMFM stuff. I have all this Franklin stuff. No, I, I, no, I never thought of it. I never definitely never thought of it as like, Oh, someday I'm going to want to have all this stuff for me. Just luckily, I think I was just someone that liked to take pictures and keep things in folders and stuff like that. So you know, we would go on tour and stuff like that. I just always had a, had a, you know, a 35 millimeter camera. So I would just take pictures. Um, and whenever we did anything for the band that had, you know, somebody took photographs of them, they sent it to us. I would just put them in a folder and they would sit there and, and that's just where it would, would, would reside, you know, cause I've always just taken tons of photos. I have tons of photo albums of just not band stuff, just right. of me growing up and stuff and my friends and things like that. And so I was just the one who did it. And if I wasn't there, yeah, it would just be gone. Like there'd be no photographs of the van or us. And, you know, when we got in a car accident or us broken down on the side of the road in Boise, Idaho, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you, it, again, it's a pro and a con, but, you know, the pro nowadays is, yeah, everything's documented. You can see everything, but it's, it's also a con because I don't know if you need to see everything. Sometimes, you know, the memory is, is the magical part of, what you live through, not the exact recreation of it. Um, and so, you know, I see, for example, I see videos on YouTube all the time of shows that I was at that either I played or I saw the band play and I'm like, Oh wow, look at this. And I'll watch it for about three minutes and I turn it off. Cause I'm like, it's boring to me. 
Right. Because it doesn't hold it doesn't hold the same experience that I have in my brain of what it was like. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, for someone who wasn't there, thank God it exists because yeah, because for that person and for me, like I, you know, if I see a show that I was wasn't Anderson with that, it's awesome, you know. But I do think sometimes you know the concept that everything's going to be documented perfectly does somewhat could could potentially take away some of the charm of it. The, um, but like, that's like not, that's not for me to decide. <laughs> right. But like, I think of like the mistake, like you had camera film, you took the 30 shots. One of them's great. But that one shot yeah. is like absolutely like timeless. And you remember everything. Yeah. You don't need the other 29. Um, totally. And I think that's something beautiful. And I feel that you did this for Franklin and also, you know, AMFM, like having this stuff out there. Um, and again, still making music. Um, and I think I, yeah. I love that. So, um, do, did you want to mention anything about that? Like that you're, you know, that you've got m- new music coming or you've got more stuff that yeah. down the pipe. I don't know. I don't know what, I, I don't know what I have coming. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, for a long time when AMFM, you know, after AMFM stopped, um, I sort of stopped playing music altogether. I was, I mean, I would strum guitar, you know, I just kind of stopped playing music and didn't really have any interest. Like I said, when I backed off from music, I was just happy to listen to it and just right. did other things with my life and just did things. And it was only, you know, a couple of years ago that I started to think about like recording anything or doing anything that I, re- I mean, I, I've recorded small things here, like cover songs and things I just enjoyed doing. But as the technology became more advanced at home, I could take advantage of it and be like, oh, I can actually do this at home for real now. And it doesn't, it won't sound like crap. It won't just be like a little crappy four track. Um, so now I'm probably more prolific than I've been in 10 years. Um, and so, yeah, so like, you know, AMFM, we ended up, you know, re-releasing our EP that we had started 15 years ago and just never finished because I lost interest and then got that completed. And that's led to recording more music and stuff. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it or what, what to what end it will be, but it really, it's just for the creative process of it. And then, yeah, out of nowhere, because Adam and I live next door to each other and Adam hasn't played year played any music in like 15 years or written really any music in 15 years. He just started coming up with some ideas and he and I started playing. So, we've written like eight songs and recorded them so far and we're not sure what we're going to do with those either, but uh, you know, it's great. It's just, it's just a great experience to be able to kind of be working again back in that same realm of there's no consequence for it. It's just being recorded for the sake of recording it. And it's being written just for the sake of writing it. And that I think just goes back to the, you know, the first things that we talked about is just, that to me is like the real creative spark of everything is that there's no, it doesn't have to exist. It's for any reason other than just to exist. And that's where you really kind of get the fun out of it. That was perfect. Do you, uh, my favorite song is E is for Enya from Adam and his package. That is just, oh, a, yeah. <laughs> just epic. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely yeah, yeah. saw we them at Mac rock a couple times or at least once. Oh, Definitely. Yeah. We would take Adam out. Adam went, we went on tour together a bunch of times. And like I said, I've known Adam since first grade. So we've always goofed around and done tons of shit before. So yeah, our, our lives are deeply entwined. So, um, he would, he came out on tour with Franklin for the first time as Adam has packaged because he had been writing these songs after his first band fracture broke up. Yep. It was one of the best bands ever. And, uh, and so he would play like three songs as we were setting up our equipment and lo and behold, you just blew up. People just loved it. You know? Absolutely beautiful. Like, yeah, I've, uh, yeah. you could be like, hey, some random uh, kid <laughs> from Vermont yeah. says, he is for any, no, it's just amazing. Like, that was so different. And I loved 
the the weirdness of it but it all like just seemed oh like God, the punk it, it kids incredible. just loved it like punk's like no no this is the the punk were like this is ours <laughs> this is like yeah way no it, I, I tell you it's a, i mean yeah it is it was i mean you know not to go too far off on the tangent but yeah it was exactly like that we would laugh constantly that we just like every time like when he first started doing it, he did it because he went on tour with us because he booked one of our Franklin tours because we didn't want to do it. So he's like, I'll just do it because I want to go on tour with you and he, and, he, and I'll be your roadie. And we're like, great, do it. So he made the phone calls and booked everything. And we're like, Adam, these Adam and his package songs you're writing are so funny. You should just do some of them while we're setting up. It'll be awesome. It'll be interesting. And we were always, you know, different kind of stuff. So he was like, yeah, I'll do it. And, you know, everywhere you go, people would give him a hard time or say that he was weird Al Yankovic or some shit. And then all of a sudden, people started calling him, asking him to play shows. And every single time we see you come back and be like, I can't believe that people want to hear me play these songs. And we would just laugh about it. We thought, we thought everybody would think that he was just ridiculous, you know? And, and then he started taking it more seriously. And I mean, I still think, you know, I still think his redefining music album is an amazing, amazing album, not just musically, but also just like lyrically, the, the way that he was so topical and on point with things is still like one of my favorite things. So, but yeah, it's great. We crack him up. We crack up about it all the time. And it's funny because he's a science teacher now. Um, and every once in a while, every new, every new year, a kid will come in and we'll discover that he was like this musician and they freak out over it. You mean legendary musician? Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, he is, he is on the Orland, Pennsylvania Wikipedia page for living yes! in Orland. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's how you know you've made it. Him him and Tommy Conwell are listed as living in Orland. <laughs> I love that. It's, yeah, it's too it's too funny, man. It's hysterical. I feel like there's more to be told that again, the you having your site is like 1000 times better than, you know, most of the bands. No one has that. No, I know. And I and I think that's the thing is I think that's where I was like, I think that, I mean, I think that's also partially a, a reason that I did it. it was just like, yeah, like, I mean, this stuff literally will just live in a, in a shoebox. And it's like, right. what's the point of it living in just a shoebox? Like maybe there's somebody, like I said, even if there's two people and honestly, when I did it, it's, I was really thinking it was like, even if my friends who were there, right. Want to go back and look at it and be like, yeah, we went on tour with you. We had a great time. Like they may want to see those photographs. Cause I, I always thought about the same thing, like before digital photographs and Instagram and everything like that, I always thought about like, how many of my friends have amazing photographs of me and my friends that I've never seen? They're living in a photo in a, in a shoebox underneath their underneath their bed. Right. You know, I'd love to see those. So that's why I was like, I'm just going to put these up somewhere so people can at least enjoy them. You know, and if nobody else from the world sees them, that's fine. But at least my friends will see them. You know. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, man. And thank you so much for your interest and even even caring enough to, to spend time with me chatting. You're part of the history. I, I don't know. At some point, I'm going to die trying to get people to, when they hear the word, they don't laugh. I know. Uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Why, 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 why pick on something like that? Just enjoy <laughs> the fact that you're a part of something, you know? Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, brother. Right on. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you, Brian. You too. Bye. Bye.